on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you. How the hell are you? No, Sally with us again this week. She's taking a well-earned Well, last month's budget was an important moment for lots of people around the country because it was going to set down a pathway uh, for what this year holds as we continue to navigate the pandemic. And with people for disability, it was unfortunately a disappointing moment because it didn't go far enough in meeting the needs to ensure that people living with disability and those that care for them and live with them can meet their needs in a way that means they live decent, comfortable and dignified lives. And that's what we're going to be talking about on the podcast today. We're going to catch up now with Samantha O'Connor, who's the president of People with Disability Australia. Well, for Australians with a disability, life is already tough enough. But when the pandemic hit, it got a hell of a lot tougher, not just in their home lives, but in their attempt to find meaningful engaging and fulfilling work that pays them a wage. Well, some are hoping that this year's federal budget might address that issue more significantly and help people with a disability uh, find a way into the workforce in a meaningful way that's sustainable and actually gives them a a dignity at work that they have been denied for so very long. People with Disability Australia is one organisation that is committed to that aim and they were disappointed by the federal budget. I think it's a long way to go until people with a disability are fully uh, engaged in the workforce and in our community in the way that they should be. Samantha Connor is PWA's president and she joins us here on the job. Hi, Sam. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me on. Now, the first question we ask always on the job is what was your first job and what has been the worst job that you've ever had to do? Oh, look, it might be the same answer. (laughs) No, look, it's probably a different job. Um, My first job was working at the tender age of um, 16, first paid job, you know, properly paid job in in a law firm as an outside clerk. So in those days, I wasn't a wheelchair user and I used to go up and down to the law courts and do all those, you know, lots of band-aids on the heels and lots of rubber kind of spent on the road filing documents and doing settlements and that kind of thing. And probably the worst job that I had was maybe the job that I loved the best, which ended up in me having to take action against my workplace for not having an accessible toilet. Well, there you go. I mean, your, your own lived experience tells us what we've been talking about in the preamble, which is the fact that people with disability all the way through their working lives have faced those sorts of barriers and it's only been exacerbated by the pandemic. Can we just talk a little bit about that first? What have been the elements throughout the pandemic that have really made life even more difficult for people with disability, a, trying to find work or to engage in work? Well, I think obviously the the outstanding fact is that so many other people are actually unemployed at the moment and so many people have lost their jobs during the pandemic. So when you've got an endless sea of candidates who might appear to employers to be better candidates, then people with disability don't really get a look in. But for some people who are already in the workforce, it's actually been a bit of a blessing because we've been lobbying for years and years and years to get working from home arrangements, for example. And so if your support worker doesn't turn up and can't help you get to work, you know, have, being able to work from home and having flexibility is a good thing. So 
a lot of people have given us feedback that the pandemic has been really, really good in that regard. So there have been an upside in that sense. Has it meant that uh, people with disability have become even less visible in the wider community, though? And in that sense, uh, the impact on their ability to be engaged more fully has made it harder for them to make those connections that we all expect to be able to make when we're out in the world that might land us a job, that might we might be introduced to someone who might be able to help us get a gig. All those things disappear uh, during the pandemic, but yeah. more so for people yeah. who uh, lack mobility. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and mobility is part of it. I spoke at a mining company a few weeks ago and we were talking about their autism program because, of course, people who are autistic have got skills and abilities that other people don't have in terms of having systems kind of brains. You know, but there's still issues around attitudinal barriers as well as physical barriers as well as other barriers. And a lot of it's got to do with us building systems and building things that fit everyone rather than fitting people who don't necessarily fit what everyone looks like, if that makes sense. Are we getting better as a community in building those things in at the ground level when, we, when we're building public infrastructure, when, when businesses are opening up? Are they now incorporating that accessibility as a matter of course? Yeah, look, they do. They, they incorporate them into physical structures, so it's now built into the standards and we've just had a big win that it's now included in residential standards, which is fantastic, especially for people who are, you know, able to age in their own homes. But for people with disability, a lot of the barriers are sometimes to do with, I guess, policies, procedures, you know, just the person who's blind is never going to see the flyer on the notice board. They're never going to be able to read with their screen reader your PDF document that isn't readable, you know. There's barriers like, I guess, you know, the employability skills where you have the key employability skills from one to ten. Well, if you don't possess two of those key employability skills because you don't speak, you know, you might be deaf or you might be a person who doesn't use spoken language, then you failed automatically. And sometimes it's as simple as not having a driver's licence or a, even something like a, a first aid certificate, which quite often can just be, you know, fixed by having a support worker who's able to drive you around or being able to give instructions to somebody, you know, I've been a scout leader for a long time and have had senior first aid certificates. And it's, it's really not a big deal. It really just requires a bit of thought in the first place when you're recruiting. So let's talk a bit about the budget, Sam. The federal government put an extra $13.2 billion into the NDIS over four years. So they trumpeted that as a huge number. Look at us, we're doing our job. But what's the reality of that spend? And what does it actually mean for the people who are supposed to be the recipients? Reality is that we don't know a great deal about it. We were told that Job Active is going to be killed, which may or may not be a good thing. A lot of people are very, very passionate about hating Job Active. But some of the other announcements were slightly worrying. You know, there was a an announcement about using a digital platform, which, of course, is the flavour of the second, where we're all going to engage with digital platforms. But we haven't seen anybody have any discussions with disabled people about what their engagement would be like in terms of using digital platforms or whether they're able to at all. So if you're a person who lives in the far north of Western Australia, in dirt, you know, if you're a person who doesn't have the money for an internet connection or if you're a person who lives in a group home or a congregate setting, there's a bunch of people who might want to use that platform and wouldn't be able to use it. But it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, is it? Because as you said, some people might have the competency and the ability to navigate digital platforms, but other people, it's just not within their ability to do so. So what happens to them? It's a really good question. I guess, what does it look like in a post- you know, in a COVID environment, really not a post-COVID environment, looking for a job when there aren't any and and fulfilling mutual obligations. And what does it look like if you can't drive a car? 
What does it look like if there's no public transport? What does it look like if you can't be vaccinated and you're terrified of catching public transport because you've got a condition where you might get COVID and we're in the middle of an outbreak? They're the sorts of issues that we would expect government to be having discussions with, with disabled persons organisations and representative organisations and yeah, and having having discussions about what that looks like, but it's a discussion we're really keen to have. Have you not been engaged with the government in the lead up to this budget? Have they not approached you and asked for your advice and, and your inputs into what that should look like? Is it something that's come as a surprise to you how this is unfurled during the budget process? The tech side has. You know, unless something's happened that I'm not aware of, I think there's been engagement overall about employment by government, but not necessarily about the nuts and bolts of things, which is where things go wrong. I was involved in the Digital Innovations Reference Group with the NDIA some years ago, and we had a really diverse group of people who were working on that group. There was a um, C3 quadriplegic, uh, myself, a person who had a psychosocial disability, a person who uses switch control, you know, two buttons on the back of his wheelchair because he can't use his hands, and then a person who was deafblind and some other people. And so having this really diverse group, we were able to test what a platform looked like I haven't seen anything like that happening and I think sometimes there's a bit of a perspective that we're really just looking at blind people and deaf people rather than a whole community of people who've got very different bodies and minds. The approach to the NDIS and the changes that we can see the government trying to shape and Stuart Robert, the minister, has indicated in some ways that there's going to be an attempt to, in some sense, to get people to jump a, a higher bar in order to receive the packages that they previously were getting. So once again, they're going to find a way to try to curtail costs. Is that going to come at the expense of people with disability being able to be supported in finding work? Yeah, <laughs> almost surely. Since 2015, in 2011, they changed the DSP rules and they changed it to a thing called the impairment tables where you had to jump through a different set of hoops in order to get DSP. And then progressively over the years, since 2015, we've had these reviews which have been very much focused on booting people off the DSP and onto New Start slash JobSeeker. And so we've had 270,000 people booted off DSP since 2015. So it's a huge number of people who were previously qualified. What does that look like for people with disability? Well, I don't drive a car anymore and I live in the country. There's no public transport between my house and the train station, which is 11 kilometres away. There's no footpath even, even if I was not a manual wheelchair user. So, you know, for me, what that looks like is relying on the support from the NDIS to be able to fund being able to get on the train. The other thing is stats from the NDIA, there was a report that came out last year, is that half of the people who are in the, who are employed, who are also in receipt of NDIS funding, were getting sub-minimal wages. So that means they worked in a supported employment deal, which means that you can be paid as little as a dollar an hour legally. You know, So this is a thing which is a big economic tension for us around support, what that looks like. And you know, at the end of the day, we just really want the same deal as everybody else and to be able to um, do the same things as everybody else, which includes work. So, Sam, are you getting the sense that this, this government and this approach is giving up on the idea that fully integrating people with disabilities into the workforce is just too hard and that we are going to leave them in the cul-de-sac of welfare dependency because we are not going to do the work required to make sure they get an opportunity to reach their full potential in a working environment? Yeah, look, I do. And I think that the pandemic has been a missed opportunity because we had, you know, now we're talking about going back to usual, you know, and going back to work and going back into the workplace. 
But I think there's been enormous missed opportunities where we had an opportunity to say, well, look, maybe we could think about changing the way that we do things permanently. If people are not able to travel internationally at the moment, what does that look like in terms of not having to get on a plane to somewhere? If people are happy to be working at home from via Zoom, what does that look like in terms of occupational health and safety? Maybe we could share some policies around that. Maybe we could have some fantastic national initiatives which actually are aimed at people who might have to spend a lot of time at home and it would certainly improve productivity, I think, for a lot of people. It's a bit of a shame that that hasn't happened and nobody's been innovative enough to start that conversation rather than, you know, sort of reaching to tech in a very tired boomer way. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. I'm two years off boomer, but, you know, it gets levelled at me all the time, so I'm just here. Me too. Um, I mean, let's let's, let's just uh, coalesce around uh, Generation X here, you and I, and um, embrace our (laughs) non-boominess. You're a year younger than me, I checked. <laughs> so I am a boomer almost. But look, I think there's, there's some missed opportunities there. I think that this approach is not an approach that is going to be anything but punitive and unsuccessful for people with disability. What's the level of anxiety around the people that you talk to and, and work on behalf of with People with Disability Australia about the budget about the you know the changing nature of the NDIS and what their future holds. Are you sensing an increased and heightened level of anxiety? Oh, look, absolutely. We we did a survey late last year, and you know even then, just when things were emerging, certainly before we knew what was what was happening and um, the changes with independent assessments to the NDIS, especially people were anxious then, and people you know it's not unfair to say that people have probably the most heightened level of distress and anxiety than we've seen in a long time. They've also introduced austerity measures where they've cut people's support. So people are being asked to do something like you're going to go to the doctors or you're going to go out to see your family. And then increasing on that, we're in the middle of a global pandemic where a lot of us are at risk and, you know, being locked in houses or locked in group homes, that kind of thing. So people are really, really doing it tough at the moment. So I think whatever we can do to, I guess, lift the spirits of people with disability, you know, if you know people with disability as well, and make sure that they're okay with a listening ear as well. I think that's a really important thing that um, people can just do, just if they're just a neighbour or a friend. As the economy has gone through a rough patch and often companies and organisations tend to uh, become more insular and whilst they might have a philosophical disposition in the past to uh, broadening the diversity, making sure that they do have the capacity for people with disability to be involved in their workplace, they can tend to shy away from meeting those obligations because it just gets too hard. Are you sensing that that cultural shift has been part of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to tell because the pandemic has just been so chaotic, you know, so it's really hard to gauge, you know, what people have thought about and what they haven't. You know, the things that I've heard personally is I've got a friend who's a quadriplegic and a psychologist. Shout out to Mr. Pete Nadarch, who's, you know, one of the best psychologists I know. Also a rabid bogan from Mandurah. He said that, you know, a lot of, a lot of his, um, his clients who are autistic people have, you know, not needed his services during the pandemic because, you know, everything's, they're not under the huge amounts of pressure they were to interact with people in the real world, you know. So there's actually some learnings, I think, could come out of the pandemic in terms of work and in terms of, people with psychosocial disability, chronic anxiety. But I really think it's down to non-disabled people just understanding who we are, what we do, what we're good at, and what a bonus it is when you have diversity overall in your workplace. You know, because if you're just all the same people working in the same workforce, then you're not going to be able to address the diversity in your clientele, you know. And so 
if you have a disabled employee the, and who's a wheelchair user, say, the first thing you've got to do is put in a ramp, right? So you've increased your business already by putting in a ramp. So there's those things that I think we could probably pull out of learnings from the pandemic and have a really robust discussion right now about what work looks like and um, what work could look like for disabled people. So just after the budget, people with Disability Australia had a list of asks of the federal government. Some of them are very direct, and I want to ask you about a couple of them. You say end segregation. So how does segregation look these days for people with disability? Well, segregation looked in the pandemic last year like a man in Western Australia getting COVID from the bus, going home and nobody knowing that he was at home having COVID, but he'd been in his segregated workplace, which was, we say, sheltered workshop, but an Australian disability employment enterprise with about 600 people working in a big workshop and doing things like packaging Qantas headphones. So essentially, A, it's not great if you're only earning under five bucks an hour and B, it's not great if you're working in a place where you're never going to meet people who are just general people in the community. You're only ever meeting disabled people. So although we do like other disabled people, you know, we don't want to spend our whole lives with disabled people generally, you know, so being in the community is a thing. If we're in segregated housing, for example, people can't see if we're missing or hurt or something's wrong. You know, so you remember the story of Anne-Marie Smith at the beginning of last year, who was a wealthy white woman who um, died in a very nice house in South Australia. So segregation is just not good for anyone. But I don't think it's good for for people in society either. People in society need to meet disabled people to know about us and to to be able to include us properly in things they do every day. One of the other asks is let us speak. So obviously being heard is crucial for any group within the community to be heard. But what particular challenges people with disability face with being heard in those forums? Well, this thing is the um, about the Disability Royal Commission. And so some rules went into place in the legislation that meant that we wouldn't be safe to actually tell our stories without fear of repercussion and the same thing goes for disability support workers who might be whistleblowers and other people who might be whistleblowers. So this was about us letting us speak safely at the Disability Royal Commission. Like we shouldn't have to tell our stories of violence, abuse and neglect without knowing that we can do that safely and that we're not going to be booted out of our our homes by somebody who might be running SDA or have no support or be in fear of that. Um, But also I guess hearing people's voices more strongly as well and making sure that people are able to to raise concerns and to have their voices heard about every single thing that affects them. And just one more before I let you go, introducing a flexible workforce strategy. So what would that look like? I know that we all hate Zoom, right? So everybody hates Zoom. We've all seen the things with people with their pants off, et cetera, et cetera. But this is something that people have done a lot for, you know, younger groups of people. I worked at a regional TAFE once, which may or may not be one of the jobs I talked about, and the regional TAFE were very good at this because we had 42 telecentres and five campuses over an area the size of Victoria. So for us, being able to work flexibly was part of, you know, this was about 2006, 2008, where we were able to use technology in a way that worked really well. So it's not a new thing. I think the other part of it is making sure that we've got good policies, good backup, but we've actually got a national workforce which could be called in from anywhere. It doesn't need to be Sydney or Melbourne or wherever. And so if we can get on the front foot with those sorts of things, I think we'll be a long way ahead in the game. Sam, great to talk to you and we wish you all the best with uh, making sure the government meets the needs of disabled people and so that they can fully participate in our community and in our workforce. Thanks for being on the job. Perfect. Thanks so much. Lovely talking to you, friends. This is On The Job. 
with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Thanks to Samantha O'Connor from PWDA, the People with Disability Australia, for joining us here on the job this week. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Don't forget to write us a review and give us those stars. It helps other people find the podcast and spread the word, people. Spread the word about what we're doing and uh, we'll make sure that uh, we bring you great content each week here on the job. Catch you next week. Have a good one. Bye for now. Bye for now.